missed your morning caffeine. I think we're set now. I'd never heard that song before. Thank you, Stephen. And I want to tell you something. The church is organized. It's just that we're not the ones organizing it. Stephen and I did not talk about what I was teaching versus what he was considering doing for worship. But they blend together beautifully. Because what we're going to do this morning is a follow-up to last Sunday, to Easter Sunday. Last Sunday, we celebrated the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This week, we're going to focus on our resurrection, something that many people today feel is impossible, just as they did in the ancient world. But with God, all things are possible. And, you know, you are here today, whether you're here in the room or you're here online, you're here today to have your life touched by God. We have been preparing for you to be here. We've been preparing ourselves. God has blessed you in being here today to have your heart touched and changed. It may be by something I say, it may be by a scripture I read, or it may be God doing something completely independent of what's going on around you and reaching down and touching you. So before I get into the word, I want to pray with you. Father God, thank you for this time we have together that you can take dry bones and make them live and that you can take our past and give us a future. And I pray today, Father, that we can, more than at any other time in our lives, embrace your goodness and your holiness, and that we can see ourselves reflected in Christ. And I pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. You know, last week, one of the things Garrett pointed out in looking at the resurrection of Jesus Christ was that he was the firstborn from the dead. Not the only child from the dead, but the firstborn, meaning that there were others to follow after him. We get to follow as younger brothers and sisters of our Lord Jesus Christ, and we get to follow into exactly what he has. This is what's remarkable. And in Philippians chapter 3, by the way, some of the verses I'm going to put up for you, but... Uh, You will need a Bible because we're going to read a large hunk of 1 Corinthians 15 this morning. I'm just giving you a heads up if you have to find it in your app or run back and get one. That's fine. But in Philippians 3.20 it says, but our citizenship is in heaven. I love that. You know, I'm in the process now of applying for Irish citizenship. It's just something I'd like to do because all four of my grandparents were off the boat. Uh... And so I'm applying for Irish citizenship, which is interesting. It's fun. My sisters are going to get it. We all get EU passports. La-di-da. But this, you don't have to apply for. (laughs) Citizenship in heaven is given to you as part of the new birth. By the way, this isn't what I'm talking about, but this struck me. From heaven, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. You are going to be given a body like the one that Jesus Christ was raised with. 
Now, when Jesus Christ was born, because God was his father, I would say he was genetically perfect. (laughs) That was his physical body. The body that God gave him when he was raised from the dead, as we'll see, is called a spiritual body. And what little we know of this spiritual body Christ had after the resurrection, that's going to be ours. And we only know the littlest bit about it. You are going to be raised with a body like Jesus Christ. And resurrection from the dead is not very well understood today. In fact, Christians don't talk about the resurrection from the dead. You know what they talk about? Dying and going to heaven. Well, you would be hard-pressed to present many scriptures that talk about dying and going to heaven. What the scriptures do talk about is a resurrection from the dead to a new spiritual body that will live forever. See, we can't imagine what a spiritual body will be like So we look at our bodies and say, well, this isn't going to be something very good going into eternity. This isn't the one I'm taking into eternity. (laughs) I'm taking a new spiritual body. And so, as I said, most Christians believe that when you die, you go to heaven and you kind of float around like angels. Because that's what people think angels do. Not sure that's what angels do, but that's what people think. But the hope of mankind in the Bible is not centered on some kind of a spiritual, non-bodily experience. That's not. That's not the existence we're looking forward to. But we are looking forward to a resurrection and a physical existence with a new and different body, eventually culminating with eternity on a new earth. Now, all throughout the Old Testament, the hope of Israel was for a resurrection from the dead. That's what that section in Ezekiel was about in that song, a a physical bodily resurrection. The hope of the church is exactly the same, a resurrection from the dead into eternal life. And because of Christ, Christians receive their resurrection at a different time than Jews and Gentiles. But that's another teaching. The end result, however, is the same. And The hope that we have is to a resurrection. Look at what Paul said when he was speaking before the governor Felix in the book of Acts. Paul was arrested. He was arrested in Jerusalem, you might know. And he was brought before the Roman governor who wanted to hear what the charges against him were. Why did the Jews so hate this man? And Paul, as his manner was, told him about Christ. And he said to him in verse 14 of Acts 24, But this I confess to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having hope in God, which these men themselves, those accusing Paul, accept that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. So while Paul was a Jew... And now, as a Christian, he had the same hope. He looked forward to being raised from the dead to eternal life. The resurrection of the body, the physical bodily resurrection of every believer, was understood and accepted by all Jews, and it was accepted as a part of God's promised redemption. There was only a small sliver of Jews that did not believe in the resurrection, and we'll get to them in a moment. But 
The resurrection, when you look at the wider world, this is just in the Jewish world, they believed in a resurrection because the Bible says it, talks about it. But the Roman world did not believe in a resurrection. To the Roman world, a resurrection from the dead was foolish. Raised from the dead, right, we burned the body. How's that going to work? Or he drowned and was eaten by sharks. Or the body has just disintegrated. They, they couldn't get their hands and their heads around the idea of a resurrection from the dead. Now, as I said, there was a small sect of Jews, the Sadducees, who also did not believe in a resurrection from the dead. And Jesus confronts them about this and shows them why they couldn't believe it. And in Matthew 22, in verse 23, it says, The same day Sadducees came to him who say there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question. They wanted to play stump the Savior. They figured they could ask Jesus a question. He's not going to be able to answer this. We're not going to look at the whole interchange. But here's what Jesus finished with in verse 29. It says, But Jesus answered them, You are wrong because you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. You see, the Sadducees thought they had a reasonable argument against the resurrection. And their argument was, this one woman had been married to seven different men over the course of her life. Whose wife is she going to be in heaven? And they said, this is just, you can't do stuff like this. This doesn't work. They thought they had a reasonable argument against the resurrection. But they didn't understand their own scriptures, which declared there would be a resurrection. But the real problem they had is they could not imagine the extent of God's power. And this is still a problem we have today. We look at the issues that face us, and we consider what possible solutions there might be. And the possible solutions that Bob comes up with are all basically things that Bob could do, or maybe things that Bob could do on steroids if he was a little better. What we don't look at is what God can do. A God who is without constraint. Like that song said, he's not about to run out of miracles anytime soon. Now, in the Roman world, of course, they didn't have the scriptures, but they still had this same problem of not understanding the resurrection of the dead. This, is just, this can't be. How could anything like this happen? This is foolishness as far as they were concerned. They thought they had good logical reasons for rejecting a bodily rec- resurrection. And Paul addressed this on, I'm sure, numerous occasions, but God recorded two of them for us. And the first I want to read to you is from Paul in the book or in the city of Athens. Now, Athens was the great philosophical and intellectual center of the Roman Empire. And he is there speaking to this assembled group of what you might call intellectual skeptics. And Here was the response when he presented Christ to them and his resurrection from the dead. In verse 32 of Acts 17, it says, Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. But others said, We will hear you again about this. They didn't accept it. Neither accepted it. Some of them just outright laughed at him. Others said, hmm. They stroked their beards a little bit and said, Oh, well, hmm. Don't know what to do with that. This came up again when Paul was in prison, and this time he's in front of King Agrippa, his wife Bernice, and the Roman governor Festus. 
And in Acts 26, 6 to 8, he declares to them, And now I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to the fathers. What hope is he talking about? The resurrection from the dead, first of Jesus, then of all believers. To which our twelve tribes hope to attain as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope I am accused by the Jews, O king. And then verse 8. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? That's the question. People still have this issue today. They cannot understand how God could raise the dead. I'd like you to turn to 1 Corinthians 15 if you've got a Bible. See, the resurrection, the bodily resurrection, was simply beyond their comprehension. It is beyond the comprehension of most people today, even Christians. They don't really address this, so they come up with the, well, we're just going to go live in heaven and float around with harps. Many Christians are confused about the resurrection, both today, and, but also in the first century. In the first century, most of the Christians were of a Gentile background. And they had a lot of trouble getting their minds straight on this very important part of our salvation. And this was the case in Corinth. Paul had actually started the church in Corinth. And God had Paul set down in order the truth about the resurrection from the dead. The question to us will be the same as the challenge to the Sadducees. Do we know and believe the great power of God? So 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and we're going to start reading right in verse 1. It says, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Again, Paul was the one who spoke to them about Christ, so he's reminding them, look, remember, I told you these things? See, it had come to Paul's attention that some in the Corinthian church had drifted away from the truth of the gospel, and so Paul starts now with the most important points. He reminds them, hey, remember, but now we get to the most important point of the gospel. You might think, what's the most important verse in the Bible? The most important verses in the Bible may not be your favorite verses. They don't have to be. You might have favorite verses that are different than this, but God highlights this as most important. In verse 3, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. And here's what's first important that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, and that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. That's the most important thing. If that's all you get, then you get eternal life. That's why it's the most important thing. Christ died for our sins. Now, dying for our sins would have been a noble act by any measurement, but it would have been a fruitless act if there's no resurrection from the dead. It would have been noble, but tragic. But there is a resurrection. So it's not noble and tragic. It's noble and victorious. Let's keep reading here. Verse 5. 
we ended up with he was raised the third day according to the scriptures and that he, Christ, appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. This epistle was probably written 15, well, maybe up to 25 years after the resurrection of Christ. So some of the people who had seen Christ have already died. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me, speaking of Paul himself. Paul says, I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. I persecuted the church of God. You think you have things to overcome in your past? (laughs) He murdered a fellow Christian just for being Christian. But verse 10 comes up. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach and so you believe. Now, at one time, these Christians in Corinth not only believed that Jesus was raised from the dead, because that's the central issue, but they also believed at one time anyway that their destiny was to be raised from the dead to a new body. But now some of them have begun to question this idea, the possibility of this idea. And this goes to a lot of our lives. People question the possibility that God could raise the dead. Then they question the possibility that God could heal the sick, the possibility that God could bind up a broken heart. And pretty soon we get down to a God who's no better and no more powerful than you or me. When we keep our eyes on the resurrection, then we understand that we've got a powerful God. And we know that the resurrection is is true because of the Spirit of God that dwells within us. During our time of prayer this morning, we heard from God by way of speaking in tongues with interpretation and prophecy. That is the power of God in evidence. And the power of God documents that the Word of God is true. Apart from the power of God, the Bible's a nice book. The Bible's a good moral book apart from the power of God. But apart from the power of God, the Bible and Christianity is just another competing and deficient philosophy. But with the power of God, starting with the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we have got the door open to live a life that is far different than the ones you may have experienced. Far better than anything you might have experienced. Now, as I said, some of these Christians in Corinth were questioning the idea of a bodily, physical resurrection. They were doing this even though they still apparently believed that Jesus was raised from the dead. That wasn't their question. Paul now is going to present to them a logical, systematic argument about the resurrection, not only of Christ, but of themselves. Verse 12, it says, Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, Paul just proclaimed it in verse 4, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. 
And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is vain or useless, and your faith is vain or useless. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. See, he's appealing to them. They know because of this power of the Holy Spirit that Christ has been raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, useless, and you are still in your sins, worse yet. Then those who have fallen asleep, those who have died in Christ, you know what they've done? Perished. You know what perish means? It means to cease to exist. A lot of people still believe that today, 70 years in a hole in the ground. Well, I hope it's more than 70 years because I'm coming up on 70 years. How about 90 years in a hole in the ground? That's what a lot of people believe, that they will cease to exist upon death. That's not the message of the gospel. That is not good news. The, gospel, the word gospel means good news. Here's the good news. When you die, you're done. No, that's not very good news. Verse 18, let's look at it again. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied because we know that Christ has been raised, but we just get nothing at the end. If the dead are not raised, then Christianity is nothing but happy talk. But Christ has been raised. Verse 20 says, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. He's called the firstborn from the dead. He is the first fruits, the first harvest of those to be raised from the dead. For if by a man came death, that would be Adam, by a man has come also the resurrection from the dead. The first man is Adam, the last man, the last Adam is Christ. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive but each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits. He was the first one to be brought alive from the dead to eternal life. Then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Those who belong to Christ are Christians. They are those who are born again of God's Spirit. This event, when they are raised is called the gathering together in 1 Thessalonians. It is the time when the dead in Christ are raised to new bodies like Jesus' own resurrection body. This is what we saw described in Philippians, that he will transform our lowly body. When it says lowly, it just means death prone. It doesn't mean your body is a terrible, skanky thing. It just means that our bodies, which are now subject to decay, will be made eternal. That's what it's talking about. So this first in verse uh, 23 is talking about Jesus Christ's resurrection, and then it's talking about the resurrection of Christians, which will happen sometime in the future, maybe today, maybe a thousand years, we don't really know, but at some time Christ will come back, and then all those who have ever been Christian will be raised from the dead and given new bodies. Look at verse 24. Then comes the end. So, Christ is raised from the dead. At some point later, Christians are raised from the dead. 
Verse 24, then after we're raised from the dead comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God, the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he, must, he, Christ, must needs reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. If death itself is destroyed, then no one will die after that point. These three verses here compress all the events that happen from the moment the church is gathered together until the end of the book of Revelation, ending with the resurrection of the just and the unjust and the final judgment of the adversary. Paul skips over these events. He, can, he, he takes, there's what, 22 chapters in the book of Revelation? He compresses that into three verses. Why? Because his purpose is not, in 1 Corinthians 15, his purpose is not to explain the events of the end times. God gave it to the Apostle John to do that. Paul's purpose and God's purpose in 1 Corinthians is laser-focused on you will have a new resurrection body, and you will live eternal life on a new earth. That's what his focus is. He wants to prove that the resurrection of Christ means that we will most definitely already also be resurrected. Let's read verse 27. For God has put all things in subjection under his, under Christ's feet. Of course, God is the creator, so everything is subject to God, right? But he has put everything subject to Christ. But when he says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he, God, is accepted who put all things in subjection under him, Christ. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him, to God, who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. This is what happens after the resurrection of the just and the unjust, after the final judgments in Revelation chapter 20, then Jesus Christ takes his rightful place at the right hand of God for eternity, and all believers, whether they were believers in Christ today during the church age, or whether they were believers in Christ who were Jews in the Old Testament, or whether they were Gentiles who were judged righteous at the resurrection of the just, they all will at that same time share in the destiny of eternal life. Here in in the end of the book of Revelation and the start of eternity, we have God over all and his son second in command over all of creation. A very clear distinction in the nature and roles of God and his son. Look at verse 29. Now, this is the truth. You are going to be raised from the dead. This is what you are going to You are going to be raised from the dead. If there is no resurrection, there's no point to Christianity. There's no point whatsoever. And this is what Paul is going to build up next. He says, otherwise, otherwise, if this wasn't all true about Christ being raised and about you getting to be raised and about all others, otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Now, this is kind of a difficult verse to sort out the way, it's, the way it reads in most English translations. Uh, it's, it's stated a little differently than we would expect. What is Paul talking about here? 
First of all, I'll tell you what he's not talking about. He's not talking about you being baptized on behalf of your dead aunt who never accepted Christ. Everybody has to accept or reject Christ on their own. You cannot accept Christ on behalf of anybody else. So he's not talking about that. What he's talking about, what's the context here? Death and resurrection. Put it in, into a more modern style of speech. What, what Paul is saying here, if your future is nothing but a dead body, why are you being baptized? <laughs> There's no reason. There's no reason. But Paul goes on to say here in verse 30, if there's no resurrection, why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die every day. Repeatedly, Paul put his life on the line much more dramatically than you and I have for the gospel. He was beaten, he was imprisoned, he was stoned, and ultimately he was beheaded for Christ. He says, I died daily. What do I gain, humanly speaking, if I fought with beasts at Ephesus, if the dead are not raised? I gain nothing. All I gain is an early grave, if there's no resurrection. Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. That is the philosophy of all those who reject a resurrection. May as well enjoy it now, because when it's done, it's done. Verse 33, do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Now, what is that? Why is that verse thrown in there? Of course, that's what all of our parents told us. I don't want you hanging out with your hoodlum friends. Because, you know, that's just what all parents say. Why is this verse thrown right in here in the middle of this? Who were the ones that were the bad company that were ruining people? The bad company are those Christians who were saying that there's no resurrection. They were the bad company that's being talked about here. Verse 33, do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on sinning. See, Paul had a relationship with these people. Wake up from your drunken stupor. How's that for just calm, pleasing, soothing words? Do not go on sinning, for some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. Now, why would Paul say something like that? Because he was the one who taught them. He knows what they were taught. Look, I said it to you. Didn't you listen? Verse 35 said, But someone will ask, How are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? This is the classic argument of those who don't recognize the great power of God. Look, I don't get this, Bob. Come on. We cremated my grandfather. You're going to tell me that's going to be resurrected? He's this big now. How can this happen? Now, here's Paul, Paul's gentle answer. You foolish person. <laughs> what you sow, now he's going to give us a series of examples from everyday life that they will recognize and admit to be true. It says, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. See, you have a flowering plant. The flower's alive, right? You cut it down, the flower's dead, but you plant that seed, and what happens? You get a new flower. 
What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that it is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen. And God has chosen that we are going to have a body like Jesus Christ after his resurrection. And to each kind of seed its own body. For not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is of another. There is one glory of the sun, and another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars, for stars differ from stars in glory. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. If you can see all these distinctions in nature, which is simply a pale reflection of God, let me tell you what happens in the resurrection. Verse, well, this is still verse 42. Here's the resurrection. What is sown is perishable. Yes, of course, our bodies are now death prone. But what is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. Because of God's power, we are not stuck with what we have now because we have a great, big, wonderful God. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. There is a natural body, it's the one we've got right now. There is also a spiritual body, that's the one Christ had after the resurrection. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. That was in Genesis. The last Adam, Christ, became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural. And then the spiritual. You see, we have to get our eyes off of just what we see around us. God is bigger than what you see around you. He's bigger than what you see in the resurrection. He's bigger than what you see for any problem you face. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also those who are of the dust. As is the man of heaven, so are those who are of heaven, just as we have borne the image of the man of dust. That's the image that we have today in this room. We shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. We will bear the same image that Christ has himself right now at the right hand of God. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. In that, at least, you are correct. This body is not going into eternity. Nor does perishable inherit the imperishable. Now Paul is going to explain some of the details of this resurrection that they didn't know or understand. Behold. And that word, the first word there in Greek, means like, hey, listen up. This is important. I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep. We will not all be dead when Christ comes back, but we shall all be changed we're all going to be transformed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised, imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body, the one that I woke up with this morning, must put on the imperishable, and the mortal body put on immortality. When the perishable puts on 
the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. You know, right now, in the world we live in today, it looks like death has the upper hand. Human mortality has been hovering at 100% since Adam, with only so far one exception, Jesus Christ. Now, what these verses are saying here, death will be swallowed up in victory. When Christ returns, he could return at this very moment. When Christ returns, not everyone, not every Christian will have died. If he returns now, we're still alive. Probably a billion Christians on the earth are still alive right now if he were to return today. But whether we are dead or alive when Christ comes back, we will all be changed and given a new resurrection body. Now, personally, I volunteer to be a part of that group that never dies. You think about this. There will be humans, and Jesus isn't among them, by the way, because Jesus did die, didn't he? But there will be humans who will never experience death because Christ will come back while they are still alive. As I said, I volunteer for that. (laughs) Verse 55, a series of questions. Oh, death, where is your victory? It looks like it has a victory today, doesn't it? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death or the sting which causes death is sin. It says that in Romans 6.24, the wages of sin is death. And the power of sin is in the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. What victory is it talking about? The victory over death. The victory over the ultimate, the ultimate enemy is death. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, Always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Why? Because there's a resurrection. To understand this last verse, you have to understand what was going on in Corinth. They didn't believe that God was powerful enough to raise the dead. So, but he's exhorting us after all this, be steadfast. There is a resurrection. Be immovable. There is a resurrection. I don't care what it looks like. There is a resurrection. Always abounding in the work of the Lord. Don't just sit in the corner in despair. Abound in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Why is your labor not in vain? Because you have an eternal destiny. That's why your labor is not in vain. You will be given a new body to live in eternity on a new earth. We will not perish in death. We, we may die if Christ doesn't return, say, in the next hundred years. Every hundred years, all new people. So if Christ doesn't return in the next hundred years, all of us sitting in this room will probably have died. But we will not have perished, meaning we will not have ceased to exist. We have an eternal resurrection destiny. Therefore, it is not eat drink for tomorrow we die. It is tomorrow may bring the return of Christ. But whether that return is near or distant, 
The resurrection is as sure for us as the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ is. And we all believe in that already. The victory of Christ's resurrection has become our resurrection victory. This is good news. This is a message that starts salvation with people. We give them the hope of eternal life and then follow that up with a hope for a life that can be blessed today. All that's tied up when God raised Jesus from the dead. It wasn't just good for him. It's good for us. So let's pray. God, thank you for how you figured out redemption. And we praise you, Father, that you are a God who is powerful enough to raise the dead, powerful enough to heal the sick, powerful enough to arrange circumstances so that your children can enjoy the life that you've given them. And we praise you for Jesus Christ now, God. We thank you for having a plan. We thank you, God, for Jesus being willing to be a part of that plan. And I ask for your blessing upon each of us here this day. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. God bless you.